Welcome to today's lecture entitled, Who or What is God? This lecture officially started one year ago today on Eric's 31st birthday, when he committed to spending the year studying the question, who or what is God? Of course, this lecture began many, many years ago when Eric was a young child and his relationship with God and his views on God began forming thanks to so many influential people in his life, many who are watching today. He grew up in the church. He was very involved in his youth group, thanks to an incredible youth pastor. After high school, he went to a Christian college where he studied the Bible and worship. And since then, especially this past year, he's spent hours and hours of his free time studying theology. Throughout this past year, We've easily had over 100 used theology books delivered to our home for him to read, which he's devoured, most often in the bathtub, if you must know. During this time, he's discovered a theology that we both never knew existed and one that has alivened his faith. Eric and I met in a basement church youth group room. We were both on church staff with hearts full of passion to change the world for Jesus. I saw his heart then, and I get to see it every day now. Getting to know him more and more every day throughout these years has only increased my admiration and respect for who he is. He lives out what he believes and values, even when it requires sacrifice. And this matters because someone's character off stage reflects their theology more than what they share on stage. There's always been a tug at Eric to follow faith wherever it led, even if it led to doubt. This lecture is quite significant for many reasons, but most of all, because it was just a handful of years ago that Eric leaned on our kitchen windowsill and shared with me that he didn't think he could believe in God anymore. And yet here he is today, standing with us, excited to share his new perspective on God. There will be a question and answer segment after the lecture. Eric is excited and eager to answer questions, so I'll share with you how you can submit them. If you go to his website, open a new tab, ericllhankins.com, click on God, scroll to the bottom, you'll see the box labeled God Questions. Go ahead and submit your questions there and we'll use them for the segment after. As the feminist theologian Carter Hayward has said, the only theology worth doing is that which inspires and transforms lives, that which empowers us to participate in creating, liberating, and blessing the world. And I believe Eric's theology today is going to do just that as he shares with us. So I hope you're comfy under a snuggly blanket with your favorite snack. If you have a dog, please give them a pet for me. And get set, because if you've ever wondered who or what is God, we're about to find out together. Everyone, here's Eric Hankins. Enjoy. Thank you, April. If anyone didn't know, that is my wife, April. Did you introduce yourself? I think you did. Either way, uh, yes, we're here. Uh, 
This is kind of a uh, nerdy little thing, but I'm excited for it, and I hope you are too. Uh, just as kind of a little preamble, this is not quite a sermon. This is more of a kind of a serious reflection on God, kind of a straightforward thing. I'm not telling a lot of personal anecdotes uh, or jokes or anything to keep us like laughing and this kind of thing. So anyway, I'm really excited for this. I hope you are too. Let us dive in to our lecture, Who or What? is God. If you would have asked me that question at five years old, I likely would have given you a fairly elementary and regurgitated answer. Trying my hardest to remember my Sunday school teacher's instruction, I may have told you about God's love or God's power or even God's commands. I would have pictured God much like Santa Claus or the big man in the sky. God was like a good but strict father. If you would have asked me that question at 12, I would have spoken about Jesus and how I wanted to accept Christ as a way to connect with God and eventually, truth be told, to find myself in heaven. I believe that if I was baptized, God would forgive my sin and welcome me back into the family. If you would have asked me this 10 years later at 22, I would have had a focused and excited look in my eye. I would have told you of a God who had a calling and a plan for my life. God had a specific will for me and my career and my future spouse and a place where I was to do ministry. God was on a rescue mission to reach the lost, and I got to play a part. I was eager to be involved in the local church and saw it as the hope of the world. If you would have asked me that question, who or what is God, at 26, I would have sheepishly confessed that I don't know. I would have spoken about a lost God, a God I used to know. This was a God I couldn't get myself to believe in anymore. I had seen some things and rethought some things, and I was in the middle of a search, a quest, for God and the answers I had known before didn't seem to match the questions I was asking at the time. And if you asked me one year ago, I'd have told you, I'm working on it. I felt that I needed some clarity, some language, a conceptual framework with which to speak of God. The muddy waters of my God talk arose out of and created a sense of this cognitive dissonance. Everywhere you look, there are different conceptions and interpretations of who or what God is. This is, there, there's the God that we speak about in a church service. There's also the God that I encounter when I crane my neck all the way back just to stare up at the tops of the trees. There is the tug on my heart that pulls me toward my neighbor and toward the planet. There are the challenges of Jesus not to worry, to sell your possessions, to love your enemies. And all of these different ways uh, of thinking about God or these interpretations, or these potential challenges, left me grasping for authentic language and reverting back to tired phrases uh, and ideas. So one year ago today, as April said, I committed myself to asking this question, who or what is God? It would be the topic of my reflection, journaling, books that I read, the podcasts I listened to, the conferences I participated in, and I wanted to figure out how to talk about this huge mystery that we call God. This could be described as a little bit of nerdy self-indulgence, but to me, this answer uh, this question comes with dramatic implications and far-reaching consequences. Admittedly, when I began this project, I had no clue as to what kind of year I would be asking this question in. 2020 has brought particular questions and challenges to our God talk. In light of one billion animals lost in Australian wildfires, a global pandemic changing literally how we do virtually everything, literally and virtually, yeah, that was pun intended, Anyway, the political division of an election year and our nation's reckoning with institutional racism and inequality, our question about the nature of God is both illuminated and illuminating in such a time as this. How do we think about God in a year filled with grief and fear and loss for so many? Where is God? Does God even care? 
Do our old ways of thinking about God still hold up? All these questions demand our attention and careful consideration. So, so this afternoon, I hope to explore the topic of God, how we talk about God, how we think about God, how or if we worship God, and what that means for our lives and for our society. So who or what is God? As we begin to explore this question, I want to say something uh, first about our approach. This is a question that isn't meant to be finally answered. If you are expecting to be delivered the secrets of the universe, I must warn you that you're probably in for a letdown. Our question isn't an equation where X equals God and we must solve for X so we can get God. Uh, It isn't a puzzle to be completed that reveals itself and all the pieces fit perfectly and neatly into place. We would do better in answering this question if we approached it calmly but confidently and asked this question to dance, if you will. Leading and being led, we will follow this question around the dance floor, moving to the sacred rhythms that pulse and flow. We open ourselves up to the power and the weight of this question. It is a question about the ultimacy of things. Thinking about God can be a dangerous exercise. In attempting to answer our question, we're attempting to grasp the ungraspable. These three letters have to hold all the layers of nuance that come with trying to conceive of the divine. The ways we think and speak about God influence how we show up in the world. They inform our decisions, values, our hopes, and our dreams. People across time and space have wrestled with the word God and the ideas behind it. And just below the surface of this word, other questions and implications swim with a frenzy. Why are we here? What is here? What are we supposed to do with this one wild life? Is this all some kind of cosmic accident? We're looking for an interpretive framework with which to make sense of the beauty and the devastation, of the joy and the suffering, the hope and the fear that make up our lives and our world. Confronted with the highs and lows and the seeming ambiguities of life, we are attempting to articulate what we've experienced. We try to put words to these conclusions. We seek to communicate our our ideas with other people. Compare notes. Is this how you see it? What do you make of all of this? This existential force in this line of questioning leads many to outsource their answers. A book is consulted, an authority is trusted, a community provides an assumed script from which to read. And we're handed formulas, we pick up clues as to the nature of divine reality, and we settle in for the confirmation of our existing circles. We don't push the boundaries. We don't press the issue. We're satiated with the bird in our hand, and we never seek the two in the bush. So let us dance. Let us not settle for cheap religion and superficial beliefs. Let us press on, let us dive deep into the sacred mystery that has come to be called God. For clarity's sake, I will announce my general thesis of this outline and give kind of a brief description of what we're gonna talk about. Here, I borrow Marjorie Suhaki's definition of God as the source of all life and goodness. From this definition, I will attempt to articulate two aspects of our experience of God. The first, using our dependence and interrelation as the source. God talk has to answer yes for all the evil and all the suffering at some point, but it also has to answer for the beauty, the truth, the goodness, the poetry, the art, the love, and the power of the natural world. The second aspect I will discuss is God as a critique of the status quo. If life and goodness come from God, our vision of life and goodness do as well. The unsettled feeling when one gets confronted with an unjust world is a divine encounter. The more beautiful world our hearts know is possible is a sacred vision. And after these two affirmations, I will then turn to a few ways of thinking about God that can be unhelpful or misleading. 
The primary culprit will be what I call the narrowing of God or what Alfred North Whitehead calls the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. This shrinking of our theological imaginations causes us to slip into older metaphysical pictures of the world that lead to dualism, a split between the, spirit, the spiritual and the material. If you make it through both the affirmations and the challenges, I will conclude with a blessing of sorts. Hopefully we will leave with a sense of the wind in our sails and the courage to face our part in bringing the commonwealth of God on earth as in heaven. Entangled in our conceptions of God lies the answer to another existential question. What does it mean to be human? This question is about humanity's place in the universe. Is there a purpose? What, who put us here? These are the questions that keep us up at night. And philosopher Martin Heidegger attempts to answer this, uh, answer this when he offers his perspective about the thrownness of the human condition. Thrownness is the experience that something or someone has thrown us into the world without giving us any definitive instructions. It's that existential pit in your stomach that if leaned into can bring about a deep despair. And it points to the opaqueness of our world, where it came from and where it's going. Pierre Teilhard de Chardin describes his experience of this same phenomenon, writing, I felt the distress characteristic to a particle adrift in the universe, the distress which makes human wills founder daily under the crushing number of living things and stars. In my own life, I felt Heidegger's thrownness and Deschardins' distress when I dismembered the conception of God I had previously known. At first, there was this sense of falling. The floor was suddenly gone and the rush of adrenaline started filling my body. I could sense the uh, imminent collapse. But somehow, I didn't actually fall. Even if the floor was gone, the lights were still on and I could see the walls, and yes, I was an infinitely small part of a vast universe. But this universe wasn't the cold, dark place that I expected. More accurately, it wasn't only the cold, dark place. When I looked around, this universe contained the beauty of stars and of sunsets and of springtime. Yes, I could understand Heidegger's assessment, but there seemed to be more to the story. Something or someone was holding me holding us, the universe. If I couldn't em fully embrace thrownness, maybe I could embrace heldness, or like the suspension of the human condition. Forces other than myself had conspired and are still conspiring to hold my existence, and I still experience beauty, and I'm drawn into relationship, and I can still intuit a vague sense of truth. I look at the trees and see that even in our, in our environmental degradation and climate change, they come to life each spring. The deer are still giving birth, the birds are still singing, the squirrels are still preparing for this year's winter. As Jenny O'Dell says, nature is inherently optimistic. So then one has to ask, what is the reason for their optimism? One interpretation is that they are simply instinctual drives programmed by DNA, uh, by evolution, and what else would they do anyway? They have to survive and get their genes into the next generation. But another way to see it is that whoever or whatever is responsible for this moment is still beckoning us onward. The future might be worth pursuing. Change might be possible. Tomorrow might not have to be like today. And this was my first sense that what I had called God might still correlate to a lived reality that I could see, touch, taste, experience. This inherent optimism built into the fabric of life is what I began to recognize as the divine. I didn't have to know or see what the future could be. I didn't have to have my eschatology or the end of the world all worked out. I didn't have to know where I was going when I died. I could simply trust that something other than me was working in the world 
to see a new reality come to pass. Henry David Thoreau recognized this reality at work when he wrote, surely joy is the condition of life. Deschardins speaks of the depth and the universality of our dependence on so much altogether outside our control. This dependence is where our optimism is rooted. We are not blindly hopeful that goodness exists. We recognize it, we come from it. In all of our experiences and our history, we have been propped up and propelled and in a way thrown into life. And this is a recognizable aspect of our reality. We exist not of our own volition, but because our real position, as Tolstoy says, is as a creative or as a creature called out of unconsciousness after an eternity of non-existence to which you may return at any moment. I am, we are held in the divine. The thrownness of life is mirrored by the giftedness and the heldness of life. The sense that I don't own my life and I'm not responsible for my own existence point to something or a collaboration of somethings that is providing for our life. Our sacred canopies then are these lenses through which we interpret and perceive this collaboration of somethings. But even when the canopies disappear, the presence of divinity is still holding us. Deschardins writes again, by means of all created things without exception, the divine assails us, penetrates us and molds us. We imagined it as distant and inaccessible, whereas in fact we live steeped in its burning layers. God is a shorthand for this experience. When we come to the end of human capacity and we stand before our vast universe and we glimpse the existence of unimaginably small particles, when we partake in the beauty of a sunset or an approaching storm, we come face to face with God. A word Christians use to describe this is grace. We are graced with life. We are graced with beauty. We didn't arrange for existence or goodness or truth, but we find aspects of them in every place and in every happening. This is why Marjorie Suhaki can say that God is the source of all life and goodness. God is the joy of existence. God is the ground of hope and optimism. God is the sun breaking through the morning clouds. God is the kiss of a lover's lips. God is a pot of home-cooked chili or mom's lasagna. God is the smell of fall leaves as they flutter through the air from their summer perch. God is every unique flake of snow as it hits your nose on the way to the ground. God is a dog's tongue hanging out of its mouth as it frolics in giddy delight. Whatever the divine is, it precedes us. It goes before us. It is here now, and it is calling us onward. It is the bosom in which we are held. It is the grace by which we make our way in the world. Martin Luther King summed it up like this. For as a Christian, I believe that there is a creative personal power in the universe who is the ground in existence, or the ground in essence of all reality, a power that cannot be explained in materialistic terms. History is ultimately guided by spirit, not matter. This vision of God as the source of all life and goodness cannot stand alone as a theory or an abstract conception. There becomes too much cognitive dissonance when we look at other aspects of our world. It is no secret that something is not right. This is even more apparent when 2020 has peeled back the curtain and revealed that many of the still broken ways which we relate to ourselves, one another, and our planet are still in place and functioning uh, more than ever. The experience of giftedness and dependence alone will not suffice for understanding who God is. God is not the sanctifier of the current status quo of our, or of our present realities. One important way that God is understood in the Christian tradition is as a critique of the reigning social order and a call for liberation and deliverance. If God, as Suhaki proposes, is the source of all life and goodness, 
then whatever is operating or opposed to this life and goodness is by definition anti-God. And if the divine is at work in our world, God is seeking the transformation of the evil, suffering, domination, and inequality we experience around us. Jose Miranda was a Mexican liberation theologian who argued that as long as people project the absolute into some objective dimension, God is then an extension of ourself and does not transcend the self. Only if God locates himself in the very ideal or appeal of the other can the world be changed. Here, Miranda is calling into question the way we confuse God for a substance, a particular being, or an object. In Miranda's work, Being in the Messiah, he, calls, he makes the case that God is only knowable through the active response to the call for justice or right relation. Only when we set out to make the world right do we encounter the divine. Miranda contends that God exists as a relational or a political reality. Here, this is not referring to our American partisan landscape, though God's reality would speak into that sphere of life. What is being articulated is that God can be primarily understood as the vision and call of wholeness, justice, and right relation between all entities. Put more simply and more familiarly, God is love. And this is illustrated in very specific instances. Jesus gives us the example of the Good Samaritan. The divine is incarnate in the Samaritan's actions, not in his attitudes or ideas. Love gets its hands dirty. God gets involved. And if we then extrapolate that into systems and institution and structures that shape our lives, we're faced with the task of scaling love. How do we imagine love or God at work in our churches, our schools, our government, or our economy? Who were those on the side of the road? Who were the Samaritans? And who were the religious leaders too occupied with piety and a busy schedule to stop and help? The story of the Good Samaritan is so gripping because we know what it's like to be in trouble. We know what it's like to see someone in trouble. And we know what it's like to ignore that person and go on with our day. We have all heard God, denied God, and continued on with the demands of everyday life. When we understand God in this way, we can think in very different ways and ask very different questions. One of the most illuminative is to postulate as to whether or not God is here. Where is God located? If God is locked in our symbolic prisons as some sort of being or entity, this question is utterly nonsensical. However, this question can be a map or a guide of sorts for Christian spirituality if we set God free from a concrete God. Where is God? The Samaritan says God is one of those people on the side of the road. And we can now ask this question in any situation or institution or social arrangement. We must learn to ask, is God here? If God showed up, what would that look like? Our answer is that it would look like someone on the side of the road. To be more graphic, someone hanging on the crosses of our day, in the face of our neighbor, we would see God in places of poverty and in systems that prioritize profit at the expense of people and our planet. If God is, again, the source of all life and goodness, God will not stand by, unmoved, by the cries of the oppressed. God will take sides. God will work on behalf of those at the bottom. God pronounces blessed are the poor, not in celebration of their poverty, but in judgment of the people and the institutions that relegate them to it. This is the place where our theology can get pretty uncomfortable. This is where the liberating God becomes a critique of the status quo, the powers that be in the current social order. The question pries a bit deeper when turned toward our own alliance with the current world order or those at the bottom of our power and our economic hierarchies. The uncomfortable part 
is that many who might be watching this talk, certainly I giving this talk, benefit from the hierarchies in our world. The story of the Good Samaritan gets pretty confrontational when we have to identify ourselves as the characters in the story. Do our lives look like those on the side of the road? Are we the Samaritans? Are we the religious leaders? Who do we resemble? A bit more stark and a bit more cutting, are we Pharaoh or the Egyptians that benefit this wealth that their brick-making Hebrew slaves have provided for them? It may seem, yes, like we're framing this as an either-or kind of paradigm, but this is exactly what prophetic voices in the Christian tradition have done throughout history. There is either justice or there is not. For many American middle-class Christians, our lives exist on a bed of opportunity. In our comfort and in our means, we are insulated and anesthetized from the situations that would put us before the face of God. We have very small amounts of what Sally McFaig calls wild space. Our wild space is any area or aspect of our lives that doesn't fit into the stereotypical ideal of our society. Our wild space is found in spaces where we're outside the norm or that society doesn't exactly work for us. With this perspective, we can learn to see through God's eyes and to view our ways of living through the prism of justice and right relation. In other words, only with the eyes of the, of the Samaritan or the man in the ditch do we see God. One of the difficulties is that our comfort and our convenience crowd out and blind us to the realities of our wild space. If we are not connected to our own displacement, we can tend to blame others' displacement on their own actions. The man in the ditch shouldn't have been traveling the road. Doesn't he know the danger? When in fact, the religious leaders were traveling the same exact road, but by happenstance didn't encounter the same fate. The issue here is that we can mistake chance or society's arrangements for the work and the will of God in our lives. These two forces combine to form wealth and opportunity and privilege. Yes, God is the source of all life and goodness and wants good things for us. But when we attribute all of our positive breaks in our lives to God's hand, we, as the theologian Bruno Mars sings, we blame it on Jesus, hashtag blessed. In our world of interdependence and entanglement, we do find goodness, truth, and beauty. But God wants and intends good things for those on the bottom of our world as well. Phrasing it in this way helps to clarify to the poor, that poor people are not poor because God wants them to be. Poor people are poor because we haven't found a way of living together that takes care of all of God's children. The call, the invitation, the imperative that the source of all life and goodness places on us is to make sure that each and every person and the beings we share this beautiful planet with have access to that life and that goodness that flow out of that which we have called God. In examining our God talk and our theological reflections, we must ask ourselves, is my idea of God a liberating force for the poor, the outcast, or the planet? Or does my idea of God want to keep things the way they are? As much as we are comfortable in and allied to the ways of the world, I believe we are missing God. One of the most frustrating aspects of claiming to believe in God is what we just outlined is not what many people believe or mean when they use the word God. In this next section, I hope to lay out a few mistakes that are common and easy to make when thinking and talking about the idea of God. The first area of concern I wanna deal with is that of overstatement. The map is not the territory, the menu is not the meal, and our ideas about God are not God. In order to speak honestly and carefully about God, we must come to recognize the limits of our tools for the task. Our language, conceptualizations, and the ability to deal with these abstractions are incredibly useful for approaching God talk. 
However, these tools are severely limited, and when we don't understand or recognize these limits, our God talk can go sideways quickly. Philosopher Alfred North Whitehead cautions us against this overstatement with what he calls the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. Misplaced concreteness happens when we mistake the map for the territory. It occurs when we assume that our abstract conception of God direct, or directly correlates to who or what God actually is. For example, this fallacy arrives, or arises when I say, I'm an extrovert. I have news for many of you, an extrovert is not a thing. There is no subspecies of human being called extrovert as opposed to introvert. These are descriptions of personality traits that we place onto people ad hoc to help categorize and understand their behavior. There are many factors that go into shaping one's extroversion or introversion. And an individual's placement on that spectrum is also fluid. It can shift. If we refuse to acknowledge this limitation, we run the risk of boxing people in, demanding that they act like their personality type and radically misunderstanding the nature of introversion and extroversion. This can show up in the way we speak to ourselves. One could find themselves believing, I'm an extrovert, I need to be around people all the time. While in reality, learning to be alone and wrestling with silence and solitude can be an immensely beneficial thing for all sorts of people. This can show up in the way we speak to ourselves. I actually just said that. <laughs> uh, this sort of silly example depicts what we can do to God if we literalize or overstate our descriptions of divinity. When our God talk becomes concrete, solid, with no way to evolve or transform or include, we find ourselves claiming things about God we never intended to claim. Sally McFaig reminds us of this constructive and deconstructive nature of God talk. First, we must attempt to say something about God, but then comes the necessity of critiquing what has been said. McFaig writes, deconstruction cautions us against trying to save ourselves through our constructions. The temptation is to seek security, by seeking security through our constructions, we refuse to step outside the houses of language which we have erected to protect us from the emptiness and the terror we cannot control. Our safe havens, called dogmas, and orthodoxy become absolutes, giving the illusion of being certain, being on the inside and having truth. And Joan Chisiter says it more simply, God is the mystery that nobody wants. Sister Chisiter means by this that we all want clarity, and much of our God talk is an attempt to find said clarity. Clarity and security are not inherently bad, and that's what we're after. But the acknowledgement of our limitations is an important piece of that clarity. Dorothy Soule explains, when you study theology, it is important to understand that all of our God language has symbolic character, and thus that there are very different ways of talking about God. So you really cannot say that God is Father, as if the two were identical things. That means that every symbol that sets itself up as an absolute has to be relativized. God is really greater than our talk about God, greater than any of our languages. We have to be aware of that because otherwise we will lock ourselves into symbolic prisons. We must make assertions about divinity, yes, the nature of reality and how to live a good life. We must seek to know and understand who or what God is. And in doing so, we throw things against the wall and we see what sticks. Unfortunately, we are not alone in this, and we arrive in the 21st century swimming in a deep stream of God talk, carried by currents of faithful seekers of truth, knowledge, and wisdom. Yet, even with what we've been handed and what we've received, we must attempt to examine and refute and refuse the mistakes, the abstract, for the concrete. 
Whitehead goes on to further describe this relational pursuit of God-knowing, saying, rationalism is an adventure in the clarification of thought, progressive and never final. But it is an adventure which even partial success has importance. So it is with caution, humility, and open-handedness that we approach a knowledge of God. We move forward with an acknowledgement of ignorance. Our ideas about God are not God. We must heed the warning of Thich Nhat Hanh, a finger pointing to the moon is not the moon. The finger is needed to know where to look for the moon. But if you mistake the finger for the moon itself, you will never know. This misplaced concreteness or the moon finger dilemma shows up in our modern Christian God talk in the form of what is called dualism. Dualism is a mode of thinking that imagines two very distinct realms. There exists a spiritual realm and a material realm with very little to no overlap. In a dualistic depiction of reality, heaven, God is up there, and we are down here. Dualism is the clear distinction between spirit and matter. Theologian John Tatamano argues that when we slip into dualism, gone is the properly infinite God. What remains is a deity subject to the categories of space, time, causality, and substance. The God of dualism is an entity which resides in heaven, acts in time, causally interacts with other beings, and is one substance among others. Once we have accepted this dualistic metaphysic, our God has become more like Santa Claus or Zeus and our imaginative limits are bounded. When we spiritualize God, when we fit our reflections into this dualistic paradigm, dualism is a challenge to our God talk because it splits the field of perception. If God is imagined in another realm or a plane of existence, God is not here. Therefore, any action on God's part has to be invasive of our natural world. From on high, and our day-to-day -day life becomes sort of this me mechanistic process. Whitehead comments on this saying, an old established metaphysical system, spiritual dualism, gains a, fair, gains a false air of adequate precision from the fact that its words and phrases have passed into current literature. Thus, propositions expressed in its language are more easily correlated to our fitting in intuitions into metaphysical truth. In other words, he's saying that though Historically, we've inherited dualistic language. To make these assertions concrete gives us a false air of adequate precision. If God and the world are completely separate entities, all sorts of questions arise with regard to how we experience God, how God acts in the world, and what God actually cares about. Why would God choose sometimes to intervene and others to remain distant? For instance, one can imagine a dualistic God stepping in to stop atrocities like the Holocaust or relatives' cancer diagnosis or even to protect a small child from physical abuse. And if God could have stepped in, yet refused, this God seems to be a monster, or even if somehow all things work together for the good. Is God a thing? Yes, if by thing you mean a gathered topic of conversation about ultimate reality that exists in our shared conception. Yes, if you mean an experienced reality that people have pointed to for thousands of years. That's what the faith transition, traditions are handing us. They're offering us wisdom and lineage to life, death, love, loss, beauty, and pain. No, God is not a thing if you mean God is like that chair is a thing. We can talk about God as if God were the chair, but we must recognize that this is shorthand. It's a heuristic. This isn't primarily who or what God is. This is how we experience or sense or seek to comprehend God. Douglas John Hall says at the center of the faith, there is a great mystery and you can't go on boasting as if you really understand this mystery. We use images and metaphors and wayfinding signs to refer to God, not 
GPS coordinates or a map or a blueprint. Unlike the chair, knowledge of God cannot help us repair the chair or build a new chair or even know how it will act when we sit on the chair. Yes, God is like the chair in certain ways. It can be felt, experienced, it supports us. God is very unlike the chair in other ways and we must be careful to remember this when attempting to describe ultimate reality. One could easily make the interpretive leap from soul's symbolic prisons or Whitehead's old metaphysical systems and transpose that framework onto much of what uh, is current Christianity. And Christian dogma can be depicted as an outdated approach for our modern world. Many in this time and place have already done this. Much of society has deemed the church out of touch or irrelevant or even harmful in its ancient conception of how the world works. It is not that 21st century America has never heard the good news. It is that the good news has been heard, but it's been dismissed as archaic or old-fashioned because Christians hold so fast to their depictions and interpretations of God. What if we are not absolutely and for all time correct as to who we think God is? What if we, the church, are stuck with centuries of assumptions that cloud our perception and limit our imaginative bandwidth? If our institutional church exists to help navigate ultimate reality and to experience the divine life, maybe it has largely failed. We have been handed neatly packaged theological statements and are asked to deduce our God talk from those formulations, these abstractions. This is the way we read and approach scripture. It is like we are starting with a solution to the problem and we're just seeking the right question to corroborate our position. How else do we explain the seriousness with which the church debates and soft pedals issues of LGBTQ belonging and identity, but the careless ways which we interpret the rich man, the camel, and the eye of the needle? Using metaphysical descriptions and becoming overly attached to our own phraseology and formulations is a hindrance to faith. Using language too tightly to define God can be an attempt to stand outside of God. In this way, we trick ourselves into believing that we can control or grasp or understand God. Whatever we end up saying about God has to resonate with our lived reality. It has to speak into our lives, into our financial situations, our social relations, and our political systems. God talk cannot exist simply as official theological statements, which we somehow mentally assent to, or at minimum, but most often verbally assent to. Our theology must come down from the clouds and engage us at ground level. Now, I am far from settling the question of who or what is God. But I do believe that I found a few breadcrumbs from experience, from the stream of historical Christianity, and from the witness of the Christian canon. It isn't the final destination, but it is enough to go on. The dancing will continue. The act of dancing with this question is something that has been a grace in my life. As I begin to summarize and conclude this talk, I want to hone in on a quote from Carter Hayward. She writes, Jesus is not operating on a religious theorem. He is cooperating in an experience of close, natural relationship between himself and that which he knows to be Yahweh, God of Israel, of righteousness, of justice. And I take this quote to illustrate the danger of taking as primary what Hayward refers to religious theorems. In a classical formulation, knowing about God is not the same as knowing God. I believe you, I, we are being invited to experience the divine to soak in the heldness of our human condition and to trust the mysterious other that carries us along. As my theological hero, Dorothy Soule says, life is no individual and autonomous achievement. 
Life cannot be made, produced, or purchased, and it is not the property of private owners. Instead, life is a mystery of being bound up and belonging to one another. Friends, we exist in a world with enough hints to beauty that we know more is possible. God has given us a taste of heaven and has called us to be the hands and the feet and the hearts that bring it to be. The vision you have for a better world, a better tomorrow, is not just hopeful optimism, but it is based on the reality of God's love for all creation. Let us not get distracted by misplaced concreteness. Let us let God out of our symbolic prisons. A dualistic conception of God blinds us to God's ongoing work in the world. The forces of love, of justice, of hope and compassion are alive and they are on the move. And this vision of God is for all people. If we close our ears to the people on the side of the road, if we walk by in order to keep a schedule and get on with our life, we will miss the very God we seek. Let us become a community on the lookout for God. And no one person can do this alone. And we aren't meant to. In 2020 and beyond, we are keenly aware of those who society is not working for. We are keenly aware of those on the bottom. We are keenly aware of our own alienation and displacement. In our cries and in the cries of others, let us hold fast to a vision of God that holds and sustains, that comforts and encourages. And I couldn't help but end this talk with one more quote from Dorothy Soul. To sing of peace in the midst of war, I believe, was the secret of the people in the New Testament who trembled under a comparable misanthropic empire and sang their different songs. Thus they lived poetically and shared with each other in a different language. God is a language far different than the one society teaches us to speak. Let us speak of God. Thank you. At this time, if you have any questions, uh, I would love to have some conversation. As I was hinting at at the end of that talk, theology is a community experience and a community uh, endeavor. So let's dialogue. And I wish that we had people in the sanctuary here uh, live to have this conversation, but virtually we will have to suffice. So I've asked April uh, to moderate these questions. If you go to uh, ericlhankins.com God, you can type in your question there. And let's have some conversation. Okay, how about we start with, what do you think church could look like if we held ideas more loosely? Ooh. Um, I would love to see church uh, be more conversational. Church, the model of church is very uh, kind of top-down. It's very hierarchical. There's even a, a platform that is lifted up. Some places call it a stage. Some places call it a chancel. Um, I'm standing in a an elevated podium, and those all have their symbolic uh, things too, like you're uplifting the word of God, but at the same time, it also discourages uh, conversation and mutuality that exists and that happens in church life. And if we held our ideas more loosely, there could be more uh, conversation. The, The most exciting thing that I experienced when I came to First Press at first is that it was, my first day was Easter Sunday, and Uh, I walked in, and we sat in the back. I didn't have any responsibilities. And the sermon spoke about doubt uh, on Easter Sunday. And doubt was something that I was very familiar with. And and I think that doubt can be such a helpful tool in understanding who God is and what God is and how to live uh, a good and meaningful life because it doubts what we've been handed. It 
there's a hermeneutic of suspicion that we can have. And yeah, if we hold them lightly, we can have that conversation with the stream of Christianity that for 2,000 years has been completely different and no one agrees. Like it's just everyone is saying their stuff and it's this conversation around uh, the divine life, the divine mind, the divine heart, and what it means to live a Christian existence, especially 2,000 years later. All right, this is my favorite part. I love this. <laughs> Can you say more about how you think this past year, 2020, writing this lecture during all the events that we've seen, how do you think that did impact the lecture? Mm, how do I think that impacted the lecture? I One, I think it... Uh, on a pr very practical level, gave me more time to read and write because we're quarantined and like locked uh, in our own apartment. But uh, other than that, like it, it puts us in touch with how dependent we are on one another. If this person around me is sick and comes into my bubble, I'm going to get sick. Um, and so it points us to a much more relational ontology, I guess, or like way of seeing ourselves um, so that we are all connected. Like I don't have existence outside of you. And like, if you're not well, then a piece of me is not well, or I'm at least at risk of not being well. And so we need to take care of one another. And so this vision of all life and goodness uh, has put into my head a vision of God who is calling us uh, to, to take care of one another, to treat one another, uh, to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Thank you. Um, I'm just going to read this one as it states. It says, in relation to discernment of, quote, is God here or where is God's will calling us to, end quote, who, how, or what defines this for the church and humanity in general? And then they add, it's unlikely that there will be a deconstruction of faith for much of the church, specifically mm -hmm. evangelical Christianity, how should we move forward in faith, yet hold that faction accountable in love? Mm. So the first part was, who defines? God's will. God's will. Mm -hmm. The second part was, how do we uh, wrestle with folks that most likely won't have a, a deconstruction mm -hmm. uh, process? So the first part, who defines it? Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of that definitely depends, or Different people would say different things, but I would say that the source of all life and goodness defines that, and the temptation can be to assume that we have to be the source of all life and goodness, where we're not asked to do that. We're asked to be life and goodness in our circumstance, and that sometimes means very small things and very unseen things. Uh, the source of life and goodness can be comforting um, a grandmother who has cancer or whatever and isn't out there affecting the world or like is not this like scalability thing I think we sometimes miss uh, opportunities to be life and goodness be the love of God um, when we expect it to be huge like the Samaritan never knew that the guy on the side of the road like that this story would be told I mean it's probably just a parable anyway but um, it's not <laughs> an actual little literal happening but in the story that's how the logic works out and the second part, how most people are not going to have a deconstruction, is I think that most people have, like, most people, uh, this is definitely speculating a lot, so bear with me. Most people have a, an understanding of God that is looser than people who have gone through some kind of, like, uh, Bible school or uh, theological education or, like, are very aligned with a certain uh, 
stream of Christianity. And so I think that folks who aren't gonna have a deconstruction are willing to have different ideas about God and have conversations about God. And I think part of um, our role in that is to ask people or at least invite people. Deconstruction sounds like a very destructive uh, task, but I think it's also a task that is hopeful. That is like there might be more to the story. There might be uh, a larger horizon. God might be bigger than you think or whatever the metaphor happens to be. Okay, this next one is related. You might have more to add. It says, how do you begin sharing these thoughts or ideas with someone that has thus far only understood a very concrete model? Do you have a specific aspect of this that you share? Hmm. That's pretty similar, I think, to my answer about the last one. I kind of see... Um, <clears throat> Sorry, can you ask the question again? Sure. I'm just thinking. It says, how do you begin sharing these thoughts or ideas with someone that has thus far only understood a very concrete model? Do you have a specific aspect of this that you share? Yeah, I guess the first aspect that I like share, I've had a bunch of question, or, uh, in, interactions with folks who like talk about God experienced in nature um, or something like that. Uh, and that for me is very a very real part of my spiritual life. Um, hashtag dualism. But anyway, that's a very real part of my spiritual life and my encounter with God. Like, I think that God uh, revealed in creation is an invitation, is a very real thing, and is a powerful way to talk about God in ways that aren't defined uh, and, like, that don't touch, like, dogmatic, orthodox-type issues, like, where we're arguing about a specific doctrinal position um, and more finding some common ground. Okay, someone said, uh, summarizing your main points, God will not stay silent. God will pick sides. God will stick up for the oppressed. How does God do that in 2020? Ooh, yeah. Um, how does God do that in 2020? I think there are a bunch of ways. I think that, um, I think that God does that in all the small ways. And I think that God does that in... At one point, I think I said something about like the, the vision of the more beautiful world our hearts know as possible is a sacred vision. And I think that God calls us um, in hopes, in dreams, in visions. And then our response is what's necessary. Like we have to go over to the ditch and like help the person in the ditch. Or like if we're in the ditch, we have to cry out. Like we have to let it be known that we're in the ditch. Um, and so like this whole taking care of one another uh, like I could get in like very specifics, but I don't know if that I necessarily want to here. That's going to be a teaser for uh, next year's lecture, so stay tuned. But uh, yeah, and I, and I think for me, a big part of it is animals, plants, the land, the planet. Um, God cares about those things and cares about the humanity that is affected when those things are gone, and cares about the whole, the how we function together. Another question says, it seems to me that there's an ebb and flow to our discussions about God. When there are times when God language is accepted and simply transmitted, and then events, often traumatic, occur that question the prevalent God language and seek alternative images and language. In your studies, did you notice any of these transitions? One of the most interesting, I guess, I, uh, if for being a Presbyterian, 
um, is Karl Barth. He's a theologian that was writing uh, around the time of World War One, and he had kind of this like there was this optimism or like hopeful blindness that thought like the, that humanity could take care of all the world's problems, that like we were gonna abolish war and whatever, like World War I was originally known as the Great War because it was kind of the war to end all wars and this kind of thing. And um, obviously that wasn't the case because we've had subsequent, subsequent wars. But Karl Barth was uh, talking about and reimagining theology in light of the horrors of trench warfare and the new uh, weaponry that had been online and deployed for the first time. And just the horror of like this massive uh, global struggle with death and power and killing and uh, all of those things. So yeah, I think that was one time. And I think that 2020, there's a lot of theologians that have uh, reflected on what COVID-19 and what a worldwide pandemic and what an economic shutdown and what our interrelatedness um, can mean for theology. And I think that that's a piece of, yeah, what I, like I said, teaser for next year. That's kind of what I'm wrestling with, I think, for this, this coming year. And what else would you say about how this study process and this lecture over this past year has changed you as an individual? Hmm. Yeah, I think I set out and it accomplished a lot in my life. I uh, did, I spent a lot of time reading, so that is like just kind of a quiet, reflective thing. So it brought peace and stillness to my life, but it also brought a sense of purpose. I, for whatever reason, feel very passionate and excited about uh, ideas about God and ways that we can talk about God and share God. And I also feel very passionate about like, I'm not a, an MDiv or like a professional theologian. I didn't go to seminary. Um, and so like, I do feel uh, kind of excited about um, I hate the word amateur theology, but like that's kind of what I think. It's like the every it's an everyday person's approach to theology. There is a stream of Christianity that has been flowing for thousands of years that we can swim in. And if we don't choose to swim in it, or at least if I don't choose to swim in it, I feel like I'm missing out. Um, and this is, yeah, it's been a huge grace. I have a lot of clarity around who or what I think God is. Um, I didn't really know a year ago. I could get myself to say, yes, I believe in God and I could recite the things that we say in church and I could do all of those. Uh, but this has given me like something more existential, something more uh, emotive to talk about and think about God. What would you say to someone who at times has questions, doubts about their faith, but hesitates to entertain them for many different reasons. It's their sense of community, belonging, might be attached to their income. What do you say to someone who's scared to even start uh, taking a step down that path? Uh, I think you're right to be scared. Um, it is scary. It is not comforting. Uh, it is a leap of faith. And that's what I don't think I understood when I was going through that process. Um, it just seemed like my, I only, uh, it was my only option uh, was to question because I just felt the pull and the tug and the thing, like I had to answer these questions. But for some people that, they don't feel that as much. And so um, I guess and my encouragement would be that it is a leap of faith. It is a step in trust that something God would meet you there. And yes, our conceptions of God and our ideas about God aren't for all time. Uh, if you witness Christian history, even how Christians have talked about God, not, let alone other religions, um, we've shifted, we've changed. The times have come in and out. And I think that, uh, that following the pull 
is what I would encourage that person to do. Um, people did this for me. I, I feel like people trusted me with my uh, process of that, and I am very thankful. And some of you probably know who you are if I'm saying that out there. So thank you. Um, looking forward, what hope, if any, do you have for the institutional church not being so stuck in its centuries of inherited formulations of God? Dang, someone listened to my talk. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> what hope do I have? I think that it can happen. I think that there are small pockets of the church, like reimagining of how we uh, think about and talk about God, and even what a church service looks like. Church services have been structured in ways that we inherited from kind of random decisions. And like, yes, church history, but that is a conversation piece that we inherit, that we can say, okay, what is this? Like, how can I incorporate this? How can I honor this? How can I move this forward? Like, what were they trying to do? What can I do with this? And so I think like just honestly, even church services that are reimagined. One of the hopes that, uh, that I have for church services is that COVID-19 would teach us that we have lots of venues in Christianity and Christendom. There are lots of pews and stages and speakers and microphones and stuff, but maybe that's not what's needed. Like the church for nine, 10 months has gone on and the church has morphed and shifted and love and goodness are still working through the church. And I think that when we allow our imaginative bandwidth to expand or whatever, like I think that church can very much be a symbolic prison. We lock ourselves into our understanding of what church is, what church should be, who church is for. And so when we expand those things, uh, all life and goodness can flow, and I have hope that it will shift, it will morph, it will become smaller, it will not have to be uh, dominant, it will not, yeah, all, all kinds of hopes, so. Okay, just two more, if two that more. works for you. You mentioned many different authors. I know you've read a variety of authors. Who are some that you would just mention to anyone listening if they'd like to check out some of the materials you read that you hmm. would recommend starting with? Good question. I love, I mentioned at the end, I love Dorothy Soule. Uh, she's a German theologian who has just really inspired me. I think I own everything that I could possibly get my hands on that is, uh, she was the same age as Anne Frank, and so she has since passed, I think in the 80s. But all of her works that are still available somewhere uh, on eBay or whatever, I have, and um, <clears throat> she has just been a lifeline for me. Uh, she reaches out in that existential faith register. She talks about uh, very real concerns. Her faith, um, her conception of God isn't uh, abstract cloud uh, God, but it is very down to earth in the face of very specific people um, in Germany and wrestling through the Holocaust and then on in through uh, German life and then eventually American life when she moved over. So Dorothy Soul is a huge one. Uh, Sally McFaig is another one who kind of started me on this whole process. She talks a lot about metaphorical theology. And so she speaks about um, the ways our language influences the ways that we see God and how it shapes how we conceive of and think of God. And the metaphors that we use for God also give shape and they fall short. And so we have to use other metaphors to combat or to balance um, other metaphors. Uh, so Sally McFaig. And then, oh, my most recent uh, theological hero is Carter Hayward. She upset a lot of my understandings of who or what I thought uh, a, kind of a Christian should be. She speaks very much that like thinking about God and living a, a life of 
life and goodness is very much connected to our heart, uh, to our intuitions, to our emotions. Uh, she speaks of the erotic nature of uh, the Christian life and it's, yeah, really powerful stuff. So I'd name those three. Thank you. And what about in your search for who or what God is, have you gained any new perspective on reconciling the Old Testament God and the Christ of the New Testament? Ooh, Old Testament God and Christ of the New Testament. Yes, I think um, I probably see Scripture a bit more loosely than most people see. Most Christians would see Scripture. And I look at it as this conversation of uh, voices trying to articulate their experience of God and trying to pass something very valuable and very meaningful on. And I think that uh, the correlation that I see, I, I do see a lot of differences and sometimes I don't know how to necessarily um, reconcile those or like to see, see things that don't uh, sit well with my sensibilities. But the common thread is this God, uh, the liberator, um, the God who came into human history and said, no, these Hebrew slaves need to get out of Egypt. I'm providing liberation. I'm calling them to salvation and deliverance um, and worked through that. And then, and then obviously in Christ, the Messiah, the picture of God who came and suffered and is calling us to be liberated from our symbolic pr uh, prisms, prisms, prisons and pictures of God. And uh, yeah, so it's the liber liberative stream of who God is that I see and both, and how we talk about God today. And just lastly, um, very important, someone needs to know your opinion on, did God divinely interject to put together the Backstreet Boys? Yes, that is definitely a, uh, a true statement. I think there's nothing more sacred and holy than the Backstreet Boys. Is that it? Yep. Thank you all for bearing with us, and if you've made it this far, you are a hero of mine, and I would love to have conversations throughout this. I hope this is, uh, starts a dialogue, starts a conversation, and we can explore who or what God is together. Thank you. Now, if my technology works, I will shut you all down. Have a great rest of your day, and go Browns. My technology doesn't seem to be working, so I'm just going to leave. See ya. Thank you.